0: platformer, he's a regular really dog, the line boss, he's a fool, got a brand new flat top haircut, Lord, he thinks he's cool, one of these days I'm gonna blow my top, and that sucker, he's gonna pay, Lord, I can't wait to see their faces when I get the nerve to say, Take this job and shove it. I ain't working no
1: Unfucking the Republic is, is brought to you by Sam C., Cringy, and Cindy S., unfucking insane-level members of the show. Welcome back, everyone. 99 here. To join the ranks of unfuckers who support the show, visit buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR, where you'll find membership tiers and benefits. Remember, you can also support the show along with our partners on the Puspatuk Reservation in New York by purchasing some native roasted coffee at unftr.com slash shop. We've got a long one today as we're talking about the recent unionizing and strike activity and the history of the labor movement in the U.S. Toward the end of the show, we have a bit of a departure from the norm as we examine the Kellogg strike and translate the CEO's words real-time into capitalism speak. And as always, stay tuned for show notes to hear listener feedback and news about the show. That's it for now. I'll see you on the other side of the intro. And in the meantime.
0: Take this job and shove it.
1: This is the story of a political pundit
2: Who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says, kiss my ass But instead of a revolution, he
0: started a podcast Just what the world needs started a podcast Another basic white guy who Started a podcast But it's fun because he curses All through the podcast I'm fucking the republic
1: 2021. Drivers, mechanics, and other staff in Maine have unionized with the Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 714. Some 32 transit drivers, mechanics, and other staff joined Local 714 and will soon be negotiating their first contract.
2: In 1953, 29.6% of the American workforce belonged to a union. 2021.
3: Booksellers at Skylight Books in Los Angeles voted to join the Communications Workers of America, CWA. The newly unionized workers seek to have management address a dozen issues, including regular staff meetings, guaranteed raises, and more equitable hiring practices. Management immediately granted the union voluntary recognition.
2: In 1974, 24.8% of the American workforce belonged to a union.
1: 2021. After a strike that lasted six weeks, United Food and Commercial Workers members at Heaven Hill Distillery in Kentucky reached an agreement on a new contract. The new contract preserves affordable health care, increases pay, maintains overtime provisions, and strengthens retirement security, among other provisions.
2: In 1983, 20.4% of the American workforce belonged to a union.
3: 2021, librarians and other workers at Worthington Libraries in Ohio voted 80 to 10 to form their union with the Ohio Federation of Teachers, an affiliate of the American Federation of Teachers. And writers, producers, fact-checkers, editors, engineers, and art directors at The Atlantic overwhelmingly voted to form a union with the News Guild of New York.
2: In 2000, 14.1% of the American workforce belonged to a union.
1: 2021, Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan announced that the state will now require contractors and subcontractors to pay prevailing wage on all state construction projects.
2: In 2020, 10.8% of the American workforce... Belong to a union.
3: 2021. Employees at a Buffalo area Starbucks store have voted to form a union, making it the only one of the nearly 9,000 company owned stores in the United States to be organized.
0: UNFTR! Tell me a story! what
1: you said. You promised
2: me you said you would. Gather round, unfuckers. Before we get to all the hooting and hollering about Striketober, Starbucks, and Kellogg's, I want to take you back in time a bit. Back to the Industrial Revolution. You know, that period that libertarians and Milton Friedman acolytes masturbate to. An economic period built on brutalizing workers and exploiting child labor. In fact, the 1900 census showed that 6% of the workforce was composed of child labor because, lesson one, corporations left to their own devices without proper regulations are inherently evil. The U.S. government attempted to reform this practice with a national review board, but it relied on states to implement measures to protect children. It wasn't until 1916 that Congress passed the first national reform called the Keating-Owen Child Labor Act, specifically prohibiting child labor. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court ruled this unconstitutional, leaving the practice in place for two more decades, proving, lesson two, that old men in robes are the fucking worst and hardly blind to justice. Child labor wouldn't officially be outlawed until 1938 when the Fair Labor Standards Act, a law almost identical to Keating Owen, was passed and successfully defended at the Supreme Court. Three years prior to this, however, something called the Wagner Act was passed and had far-reaching consequences for owners and labor. Much of what was contained in the act remains hotly contested even today, or was steadily undone over the next several decades through legislation hostile toward unions. Crafted by Senator Robert Wagner, the Wagner Act was considered the, quote, Magna Carta of the labor movement. In his book, The State of the Union by Nelson Lichtenstein, the author says Wagner, quote, guaranteed workers the right to select their own union by majority vote and to strike, boycott, and picket. And it enumerated a list of unfair labor practices by employers, including the maintenance of company-dominated unions, the blacklisting of union activists, intimidation and firing of workers who sought to join an independent organization, and the employment of industrial spies, end quote. Wagner was long overdue. Prior attempts to codify workers' rights had nearly all ended in disaster. It wasn't that unions didn't exist prior to Wagner, but they were largely mistrusted by corporations and politicians who viewed them as collectivist threats. I wanna offer two examples from this era, the height of the Industrial Revolution that I feel are extremely relevant today because the men in power were considered to be good and benevolent. Andrew Carnegie and George Pullman. The former enjoys several historical rewrites to paint him through his charitable work as one of the most magnanimous Americans who ever lived. When's it get good? Keep your shirt on. Let me read. Carnegie was a titan, one of the wealthiest men who ever lived. He's known today as the great philanthropist of the ages, but the story of his accumulation of wealth is the same as all other preposterously wealthy individuals, built on the back of, and at the expense of, labor. At the height of his power in the late 1800s, Carnegie controlled a vast steel empire that he would ultimately sell to J.P. Morgan, who consolidated steel holdings in a trust known as U.S. Steel. And if it wouldn't annoy 99 so much, this is where I would have inserted a clip of Hyman Roth telling Michael that their gambling enterprise was bigger than U.S. Steel. But I'm not going to do that.
3: I, on the other hand, have no such qualms.
2: Michael,
0: we're bigger than U.S. Steel.
2: While it's true that Carnegie would devote his life after selling his interest to philanthropy and education, there's one event that marred his reputation during his lifetime, the Homestead Strike. Carnegie's workers were part of the amalgamated association of iron and steel workers and were working under an agreement in the 1880s that was set to expire. Rather than renegotiate in good faith, the company worked actively against the union to try and break it up instead. Over a period of a couple of years, tensions finally boiled over and the workers went on strike. But because Carnegie had until this point paid lip service to the working man, he was in a bind. Rather than lose face, he took off on a long vacation to Scotland and left his anti-union chief, a dude named Frick, in charge of handling the strike. During this time, all hell broke loose. Carnegie's corporation compelled law enforcement to force the workers to end the strike and hired an outside agency called the Pinkertons, a private contracting security firm that essentially employed armed goons to do the dirty work where the law wouldn't. After initially rebuffing the Pinkertons, the employees were ultimately overwhelmed and the strike ended in brutal fashion with several dead and the union defeated. Then there's good old George Pullman, the rail car tycoon who went so far as to build an entire town for his employees. Pullman was a true innovator and a man of the people until he wasn't. Pullman owned all the real estate in his Illinois town where his employees worked and gave them housing with the rent being deducted from their paychecks. Everything was rather fine and dandy, and Pullman was the darling of capitalists far and wide for creating a benevolent working utopia. But when a recession hit and orders for his Pullman rail cars slowed down, Pullman instituted wage cuts across the board, but only for his workers. The only problem is that Pullman executives saw no such pay cut, and the workers saw no reductions in their rent. This left most of the employees in a dire situation that pushed them to the brink and forced them to strike. Like Carnegie, Pullman had his limits, only he didn't flee the country. But he did hide from the press for a long time. And while he hid, the Pullman strike turned into a national railway strike in solidarity, and it nearly brought the nation to its knees. Pullman enlisted the support of the Cleveland administrations, whose attorneys coyly argued that the rail strike was prohibiting mail from being delivered on time and was therefore a national emergency. Now here again, the government sent in federal troops to beat back the strikers. The strike itself was organized by some of the most prominent figures in U.S. history and really important people in years to come in the fight for social justice. Samuel Gompers, who actually punked out like a bitch at the last minute. Eugene Debs, arguably the most famous socialist in U.S. history. And Clarence Darrow, famed liberal attorney and activist. But in the end, the workers still lost. Debs was jailed, strikers were beaten, and the government proved that it would always intervene on the side of big business. As Philip Dre writes in There is Power in a Union, quote, the movement learned decisively that it had no friends in Washington, and that the federal government would not hesitate to send soldiers to confront workers pressing legitimate grievances. Most disturbing was the government's use of an antitrust law to halt union organizing and even gag communication from a union's leaders to its members a throwback to the supposedly discarded notion that routine labor union activity represented a combination or conspiracy dangerous to society, end quote. But hey, at least the Pullman strike made Congress feel guilty enough to give us Labor Day. Sorry about all the corruption, murder, and suppression. Here, have a day. Someday you'll be able to get a 50% discount on a mattress and a bed frame on this day as we force all retail operations to open in celebration of consumption. I wanted to start with this because as we jump forward in our little tale today, it's clear that we found ourselves right back at the beginning of the struggle with powerful forces working against the working class, the working class working against itself, and government and elites aligned with the billionaire class, still believing in the myth of benevolent capitalism.
0: UNFTR!
2: The 1920s and 30s. So in the beginning of the 20th century,
3: labor was still in a precarious position relative to the growth of the U.S. economy. Labor unions were a thing, but they had yet to gain serious traction and were more often than not brutally suppressed by giant corporations who, along with Wall Street,
2: posted historic gains. Of course, what goes up? So on the theme of familiar refrains, as the industrial era matured and we hit the roaring 20s, things were pretty rosy for big business and Wall Street. As Lichtenstein put it, quote, In the decade that ended with the crash, output per worker in manufacturing leaped upward by a remarkable 43%, while wages barely held their own. Meanwhile, the incomes of the very rich, the top 1% of the population, rose from 12 to 19% of that generated by the entire nation. End quote. Now as the nation, and in fact the world, collapsed into the Great Depression, it became painfully evident that some reform was required in the system. To put it mildly, The complete absence of worker protections was one thing when there was work. But when the country went belly up, it exposed every crack, every weakness in the system. And for a brief period of time, there was actually alignment in this belief from the elites down to the gutter, but not always for the same reasons. It should be recognized that only white males had agency in the fight for union rights until now. With southern blacks living under horrid Jim Crow conditions, northern communities shunning black migration north, and women completely disenfranchised in the industrial sector, the movement struggled to gain in numbers and consolidate power. Ironically, it was the communists who viewed black membership as vital to the success of the labor movement. In fact, one of the communist slogans of the 30s was, quote, Negro and white unite and fight. This was an enormous statement at the time because up until this point, segregation was the way of the American world in every way possible. There were black unions with robust membership in the South, but the struggle for workers' rights was seen as a uniquely white struggle. But the communists understood that, as Lichtenstein writes, "...equality between African Americans and whites would not be limited to the worksite or the union membership roster." It must prevail at every level of existence, in the courts and at the ballot box, certainly, but also in the realm of social life, the neighborhoods, schools, summer camps, dance halls, and marriage beds, end quote. Kumbaya, lord. Kumbaya. Kumbaya, lord. This was a completely radical notion that changed the perception of some union members and leaders such as Debs though others like Gompers were unmoved. But the idea was introduced and it was out there. Change in one area of society couldn't possibly account for what was truly required to improve society as a whole. America and capitalism at the time looked as though they had failed, and here, amidst the most radical element feared by most Americans, was a vision of equality and equity that held great appeal Blacks and women and white men who suddenly found themselves on the losing end of the capitalist bargain. Unions weren't just solving issues of gender or race. Unions were about the class struggle. Another element that is strange in retrospect is how the depression turned Americans against the elite power structure and created an authentic connection between the struggles of the working class and the promise of America. It suddenly became patriotic to be on the side of the working class. Again, Lichtenstein. Quote, The Depression-era labor movement deployed huge American flags in all of its struggles, even those led by avowed leftists. The national banner symbolized the power of a newly assertive federal government and the kind of ethnically diverse Americanism the New Unionism and the New Deal sought to build. Waving the stars and stripes, American unionists announced that they too were part of a patriotic tradition that was expansive enough to unfold a new industrial democracy," end quote. One of the most game-changing strikes in history was at General Motors, a behemoth by any standard, and incredibly hostile to workers who were spread out across the country in various plants. Organizing on this scale against a formidable giant was no small task and carried great risk of scabs and outside agitation by management. So the employees organized a physical occupation. As Lichtenstein explains, quote, "'During the course of the six-week factory occupation, Flint sit-downers held frequent meetings, conducted classes in labor history, put on plays, prepared their meals, and scrupulously avoided damage to company property or products. They drew upon nearly a decade of labor-left political and social activism to construct a counter-hegemonic union culture with which to challenge GM's corporate worldview, end quote. And thus, the UAW was born. The 1940s and 50s.
1: The story of union organizing in the United States is a story of workers. The story of union busting is equal parts race, gender, and class. Nowhere is this tension more apparent than the 40s and 50s, when union membership reached a peak, then began its long descent to where we are today, brought down by a combination of racism, sexism, classism, red scare, fear mongering, and ultimately, free market ideologues hell bent on destroying the lower classes in America.
2: This brief period in the 40s and 50s, as the country pulled out of the Great Depression with New Deal reforms, strengthening the foundation of the working class, was huge for labor because the economy had finally caught up with the hard-fought New Deal protections and gains for workers. World War II had enormous social and economic impacts on the U.S., and the post-war boom represented the height of union membership and activity. By now, southern blacks had migrated to northern urban environments and were occupying important roles in factories and plants across America. Women, who were called upon to enter the labor force, suddenly had a seat at the table, if only in a limited capacity. The general acceptance of union labor was wholly new and carried great potential for labor, but there was trouble brewing on the horizon as the power structure had also regained its footing in the post-war economic boom and the powerful elites were determined to recapture their supremacy at the expense of the working class. Now, in terms of legislation, this didn't take long at all. Immediately after World War II, the Republicans had taken over and set about dismantling New Deal-era reforms as quickly as possible. Though it would take the next three and a half decades between the war and the Reagan-era war on labor to bring to fruition, the opening legislative shot came in the form of the Taft-Hartley Law, Originally touted as a way to purge communists from union roles, which it did, it had even more deleterious provisions such as the right to enact what are called, quote, right-to-work statutes that were determined on a state-by-state basis. So these statutes were intended to divide the union membership at the state level and put more power into the hands of corporations. It's just like every racist law that had come before it that makes it a state-level issue and not federal. So they put corporations back on even footing with unions and employees and allowed companies to skirt laws against intimidation tactics under the guise of free speech. So by shifting the onus to individual states, anti-union powers were able to separate the centers of power in large unions. And by cloaking intimidation tactics in free speech language, it allowed corporations to once again engage in fear mongering over employment stability. And by demonizing that unionizing philosophy of socialism and communism, it was able to create hierarchies and distrust within membership. Dre concedes additional factors on top of the structural issues created by Taft-Hartley. The loss in the perceived importance of unions was due in part to worker complacency made possible by a strong post-war economy. Technology had also played a role, diminishing the number of industrial jobs around which labor organizing was traditionally centered and creating new white-collar occupations more associated with management than labor. Taft-Hartley had excluded foremen and supervisors from labor law coverage, which made workplace unity more difficult because fewer new jobs were blue-collar in character, end quote. So the bottom line here is that all of the union mojo gained through the difficult years of the Great Depression and the Second World War soon dissipated now that the country had recovered.
0: Ah. What's wrong? Ah. Crikey! I've lost my mojo!
2: The 1960s and 70s.
3: Unfortunately, our story doesn't get much better from here. Ironically, the success of the Civil Rights Movement had the unintended effect of further fracturing the delicate relationship between black and white workers. Essentially, there was only so much energy and bandwidth that could be deployed, and LBJ's great society years put some crucial building blocks to
2: equality on the table. Prior to the Voting Rights Act, Equal Employment Opportunity Act, and the Fair Housing Act, along with safety nets such as Medicare, unions were the only thing that resembled something close to equity in the black community. Black leaders had their eyes on the prize, and union membership was all too anxious to revert back to their segregated ways. So as usual, black Americans were filling one pocket with overdue justice measures, while white leaders reached their hands into the other pockets. As the civil rights movement raged on, blacks were achieving huge victories, only to see their numbers begin to dwindle in the ranks of the unions. First through separation of management from workers, another important part of Taft-Hartley, then through reduced recruitment and outright bullying. Essentially, the economy was hot and white workers began to reassert themselves against black workers. All the while, corporate and Washington elites were reasserting themselves against the entire working class. Bit by bit, inch by inch, unions were unraveling. Separate them federally and make them battle at the state level. Separate management from workers. Separate blacks from whites. Then turn them all against one another through propaganda made worse by endemic corruption among union leadership. As Kurt Anderson writes in his incredible book, Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, quote, back in the day, unions had been an essential countervailing force to business. But now, having won the 40-hour weeks, good health care, good pensions, auto worker salaries of $75,000 in 2020, OSHA, the EEOC, organized labor was victorious, powerful, and the establishment. These powerful institutions, the former machinist Irving Kristol astutely wrote at the beginning of 1970, just before publicly moving full right, were inexorably being drained of meaning and therefore of legitimacy, end quote. Nobel laureate Robert Schiller's book titled Narrative Economics examines the power of story in driving economic events. Now in it, he speaks to a prevailing narrative in the 1970s, which is arguably the final turning point in America in anti-union sentiment after decades of falling in and out of favor. The concept that came to the surface was something called the wage price spiral. Here's Schiller's explanation. the wage price spiral narrative described a labor movement led by strong labor unions demanding higher wages for themselves, which management accommodates without losing profits by pushing up the prices of final goods sold to consumers. Labor then uses the higher prices to justify even higher wage demands, and the process repeats itself again and again, leading to out of control inflation. Now, remember that when we get to our Kellogg's example toward the end of the show, on fuckers. Now, we've covered in previous episodes how the stagflation shock of the mid-1970s resulted from the OPEC oil shock, convulsions in global markets from the U.S. repeal of the gold standard, two revolutions in Iran, and Fed intervention policies. But these factors would blow back on the Carter administration and pave the way for Reaganomics. It would also contribute to great antipathy toward unions who were seen as greedy, corrupt and the cause for the wage price spiral, Uncle Dick Noggin was right there to fan the fucking flames. The offhand reaction of most people is likely to be that labor unions are largely responsible for the enormous progress that workers have made in the past two centuries. But clearly, at least for the United States, that cannot be true. After all, in the 19th century, when workers did very well, there were hardly any labor unions at all. It's because you had child labor and abused workers. Oh, and during the time period that you love so fucking much, you mealy-mouthed cretin, there was a recession in 1847, 1853, 1857, 1860, 1865, 1869, 1873, 1882, 1887, 1890, 1893, and 1896. It's 12 recessions in 50 fucking years, and it doesn't even take into account the number of industrial deaths and in factories, you fucking shill. God, fuck that guy. Hashtag FMF. But the damage was done. Union support dropped precipitously within one generation. Mind you, there were plenty of self-inflicted wounds along the way, not the least of which was endemic corruption at the highest levels, personified by the likes of Jimmy Hoffa. As Philip Dre notes, The negative image that had long haunted labor was that it was radical or socialistic. Now, ironically, even as the movement had struggled to defeat such impression by publicly denuding itself of communist influence and striking at its manifestations elsewhere... It had been blindsided by attacks that linked it with something tawdrier, a sin even more offensive, end quote. Corruption, as Dre indicates, was more insidious than even communism or socialism. These were external threats. But corruption? That was internal. It was a disease. Kurt Anderson marks the 1970 hard hat riot in New York City as the great cultural and psychic shift in antagonism between white working class union members and liberal elites, a coalition that was once unified in protecting the rights of workers. So in his book, Evil Geniuses, Anderson relates the account of union construction workers descending on a group protesting the student murders at Kent State. The construction workers, many of whom were wearing hard hats, hence the name, brutalized the young protesters chanting, All the way, USA. So somehow, the idea of protest, even at something as horrific as the Kent State Massacre, became synonymous with anti-American sentiment. Management was able to wrap the hard hat in a flag and paint defenders of free speech and peace as pinko commies and leftists. Here's Anderson again. Quote, beginning right then, The suspicion and contempt between less educated white people and the liberal white bourgeoisie was what the American class struggle was most visibly and consciously about. And it would define our politics as the economy was reshaped to do better than ever for yuppies and worse and worse for the proles, regardless of their ideologies and cultural tastes. End quote.
0: UNFTR
2: We've covered a bunch about Reagan in our time together, although we didn't specifically address his hostility towards any union that didn't represent law enforcement. These types of service unions, anything involving force and law and order, is completely on brand for the Republican Party and continues to be so to this day. But Reagan would also chip away at the structure and foundation of trade unions and other service unions, a practice furthered by every president since that time. Until today, amazingly. In rhetoric, at least. See, the thing about Biden is that he's the most vocally supportive of all types of unions of any president in my lifetime, certainly. Whether he ultimately puts energy and weight behind labor remains to be seen, and as we've discussed, his time is almost up because the midterms are likely to be a bloodbath. But he did come out, again rhetorically, in support of the Kellogg strike and is generally sympathetic in tone to recent efforts on the part of the unions. We'll see. As of right now, The Senate has a bill in front of it that has already been passed by the House called H.R. 842, Protecting the Rights to Organize Act of 2021. It passed 225 to 206, and it's designed to reduce intimidation tactics on part of employers, take immigration status threats away, unions could supersede the right to work laws in individual states, and it would end the practice of replacing strikers with permanent workers. Of course, Biden's really not talking about this bill very much. And the Senate is too afraid to get rid of the filibuster, so this bill probably isn't going to see the light of day unless I'm really missing the mark here. I just don't see it happening. And that's why so much of the rhetoric is already falling so flat. H.R. 1 for the people, vital for our democracy, not hearing much about it. H.R. 842, protecting the right to organize, probably going to die. Giving up on the social infrastructure elements of Build Back Better so we could just print enough money to repave every road? Oh, and line Time Magazine's Person of the Year, Elon Musk's pockets even more by building out his charging infrastructure across the country? Sure, why the fuck not? I don't want to just rant about this, though.
3: Mm, sure you do.
2: So I thought it would be interesting to do something a little different, to really contextualize a real-life labor struggle by examining the language of Wall Street. And then I'll offer some closing thoughts on the other side of it. Ah, Kellogg's. The maker of life-sustaining food like Pop-Tarts and Frosted Flakes. Stuff that's really good for you. No, not just good. they Taking a look at their top-line financials, we see some pretty healthy stuff, just like their Pop-Tarts. Kellogg's turned a profit of about $1.7 billion on $13 billion in sales in 2020. And, good news folks, revenue and profits are set to increase this year by 9%, as they've already posted a profit through three-quarters in 21 of $1.4 billion. And yet, on the ground the workers at Kellogg's are battling management over contract negotiations that would see a split in tier compensation for new and less tenured workers at the plants. As the Jacobin reports, quote, sales are up, Steve Kallane, Kellogg's CEO, made roughly $11.6 million last year, and the company recently authorized $1.5 billion in stock buybacks to boost shareholders' returns, end quote. The dispute between labor and management boils down to Kellogg's desire to create a tier system that will provide fewer benefits to new members. So the workers contend that this would create ill will between tiered members and put tenured members on the chopping block during periods of cost cutting. And by the way, that's exactly why governments and companies do this. What should be lauded about this is that the Kellogg's workers aren't fighting for their individual current rights. They're fighting for future members. If there was ever a noble struggle, this is it. And that's not obviously the way that Kellogg's views it. The world is a mess. Supply chains are disrupted and costs are rising. They view their actions as timely and responsible, ultimately protecting their more important constituency, shareholders. And here's where I want to dissect the Wall Street insider speech so we can all listen to how this goes in real time. Let's go through this together and we'll translate what the Kellogg CEO is saying to Wall Street in a recent investor relations interview with CNBC. Take a listen.
0: Yeah, it was. We had had a very strong quarter. You know, we drove volume, we drove price, we drove mix. Uh, You know, our brands held up very well despite all the supply chain challenges.
2: So to begin, (laughs) Kellogg's had a very strong quarter. That's on top of a strong trailing 12 months in growth and revenue and cash flows, as we said before. So the key here is that they drove what he says, volume, price and mix. So driving volume and mix means that they just sold a lot across their portfolio, more sugary cereal and Cheez-Its to the world. No great innovation, just sold a lot. But it's the price driver that should get everyone's attention. He said that volume increased, which contributed to the growth of sales, and that makes sense. But they also raised their prices, And we know that this was just a decision to drive profit because he ends the clip saying they did all of this despite supply chain issues, which makes one wonder whether they actually experienced any issues or whether they're just using that as a talking point. Because if you had supply chain issues, I mean real ones, you wouldn't drive more volume. You would drive less. It's perfectly rational to increase prices to maintain margin if you're having volume issues but here he's saying they had no problem distributing and increasing the volume and they raised prices. So if you listen carefully, you'll hear Milton Friedman laughing in his grave. Anyway, let's continue.
0: Our international business performed exceptionally well led by uh, our EMEA region, a highlight on Africa. Our Europe business had 16 consecutive quarters of growth. Uh, really outstanding performance in the UK and Russia. So broad based across the patch for us. Uh, but as you pointed out, price mix was, was clearly uh, an important driver for us.
2: 16 straight quarters of growth in Europe, and Kellogg's is doing the Lord's work by introducing Pringles and Pop Tarts to the African continent. No vaccines for you, but here's some diabetes in a can. No hint of supply chain issues there, but at least he acknowledges that in addition to expanding into new markets, they were able to raise prices despite little to no pressure to do so just greed this is what greed sounds like
0: there's obviously a lot of supply chain challenges a lot of things to overcome but when we look at where we've been over the course of the last several years you know more and more our snacks business especially stands out and it's really been driving sustainable robust dependable growth for us and we see that continuing
2: Here's that fucking supply chain thing again it's pretty much all we've heard about in corporate media And I'm fully acknowledging that there are still inventory issues and buildups at the ports and companies are struggling to find containers. And we're working through existing stockpiles of inventory all over the world. But we're talking right now about fucking potato chips and frosted flakes. You don't get to say that you're obviously working through supply chain issues while at the same time saying you're exploding in new international markets and increasing the volume of sales. These two things do not go together, but that's Wall Street, everyone. If there's a prevailing sentiment, true or not, go with it and claim it for your own.
1: Steve, let's talk a little bit about the labor piece of the puzzle right now. The fact that uh, your workers that are unionized, that are striking, have rejected the most recent offer you've put in front of them. How is that factoring into your forecast and what is it going to take to see a deal uh, actually manifest?
2: Okay. Game on, motherfucker. Here we go.
0: What I'd say about that is, you know, we're obviously still in negotiations with our people. We want our people back. I mean, they performed so heroically throughout the course of the last 18 months. Stop.
2: Okay, Steve. Fuck you. Fuck you and your essential worker. You performed heroically bullshit. Fuck you. Fuck your $11 million paycheck. And fuck your pandering. Heroes when you need them. Shit heals when you don't. Continue.
0: The workers we're talking about are specific to our four U.S. cereal plants and they have right now a contract uh, that's expired that has industry leading wages and benefits. And we are putting in front of them, we put in front of them increases uh, in compensation. So there's no takeaways, despite what you know some may have said. There are no takeaways. It is an excellent offer. Uh, we want our people to see that offer. We want our people back. And uh, you know we're working very, very hard to make
2: that happen. That's not the issue, Steve. That's what makes this a noble fight, and what makes you a fucking pariah. These workers are standing up for the ones to come, not themselves. He's reframing the issue in the most patronizing way possible, saying they're heroes but also greedy. The next bit is Steve O answering a question about inflation and if he thinks it's going to be around for a while.
0: And so we don't, we don't see any kind of mitigation. Um, in commodity pressures in cost pressures and what you're seeing is all these friction pressures you know logistics all things supply chain uh, still being disrupted and so we're planning on it continuing for the foreseeable future so we're not predicting an end to it and we're looking towards productivity and what we call revenue growth management
2: friction commodity pressures logistics supply chain issues just the fucking kitchen sink explanation behind this.
0: And how does price figure into that equation?
2: Yeah, Steve, how does price figure into this equation? Now listen to the whole thing here. It's masterful.
0: Well, price is important. Price is one of the levers for us. And you know we don't talk prospectively about pricing, but when you look at what we've done over the course of this year, we've actually been ahead of it. So we've been able to cover all the commodity types of costs that we've seen and we do that through uh, price. We do that through mix. We do, uh, do that through assortment, all sorts of things. But what we really try and keep um, at the center plate is our consumer and making sure that we're driving value for the consumer. So as we need to take price, we talk about the, the right to take price or the deserving um, of taking price, asking consumers to pay more because we're giving them more in terms of innovation, in terms of value.
2: Okay. Did you hear the word soup in the beginning about price? Let's just play that back.
0: Over the course of this year, we've actually been ahead of it. So we've been able to cover all the commodity types of costs that we've seen. And we do that through uh, price, we do that through mix, we do, uh, do that through assortment, all sorts of things.
2: Price, mix, assortment, all sorts of things, he says. What the fuck does that actually mean? It's not all sorts of things, it's just raising prices underlying demand is strong. They have no supply chain issues as evidenced by their increase in volume and new markets. They are inflation. He said it directly. They, quote, got ahead of commodity pricing issues. How? By raising prices. You, Steve, you are inflation. If you got ahead of it, then you're the driver. You see how this shit works? Talk about opportunistic capitalism. People are home, locked in, eating more snacks. So they just Raise their prices and conveniently blamed it on factors that are not their factors. They just saw a chance to raise prices and they fucking took it. But don't worry, because he's also sensitive to the consumer.
0: As we need to take price, we talk about the the right to take price or the deserving um, of taking price, asking consumers to pay more because we're giving them more in terms of innovation, in terms of value.
2: The right to take price? You're deserving of a raise because you drove value somehow? Steve, if you give the same product at a higher price, that is not the definition of value. And taking price, what the fuck is that? Innovation? Oh, please, tell me how your latest Cheez-It innovation was so fucking groundbreaking, you deserve the right to, quote, take price? This is standard Wall Street euphemism bullshit. Taking price? Here's the real translation. We raised prices because we could and no one could stop us. Our supply chain is fine. In fact, we're humming. More business than ever. More volume than ever. And we raised prices because we wanted to. That's the honest response here, but you're listening to a masterclass in Wall Street fucking bullshit. And they'll turn all this shit around on the heroic workers by saying that they're greedy. That's why we have inflation. That's why we hate workers. That's why the corporate media is complicit in these narratives. And that's why we need financial and news literacy training to spot this fucking bullshit a mile away. And that, my dear unfuckers, is why we need unions. Child labor, the fight for eight hour days, strikes and scabs, sit-ins and riots. On the waterfront, Norma Rae. Racism, sexism, communism, socialism. From goat to hero and back again. Rinse, repeat. The story of unions is the story of America, told in multiple bloody chapters. But there's one consistent theme that emerges from all of this. Workers are just foils, Pawns in a game they don't even know that they're playing. When the titans were building the nation in the industrial era, Washington turned a blind eye to the abuse of children and workers. It wasn't until the Great Depression that our government and our owner class turned to the workers to ask them for help. In return, they got a new deal. If they were white. This was, after all, still America. And when the war came, the workers went abroad to fight. So the government turned to the black community and to women to ask for their service. They made posters and short films about them. And they too got a new deal. But when the fighting ended and the economy was booming, our true colors were once again revealed. We took our racism up a notch, sent women back to the home, passed anti-organizing legislation, and called anyone who organized a communist. Then they chipped away at our alliances, turned to the states to compel them to split black and white union brothers and sisters apart, and turn them on one another. The civil rights movement went one way, workers went another. And as the economy morphed from industrial to financial to service, the management class turned on the lumpen proletariat. They were the cause of inflation. They were the cause of work stoppages. They were inherently corrupt and therefore un-American. So when the 90s came, no one wept for the workers as labor was shipped abroad. As famed economist Joseph Stiglitz wrote, quote, globalization in the manner in which it has been structured has diminished the ability of unions to gain pay raises for their workers and this reduction in their effectiveness has contributed to diminished membership union leaders sometimes do not adequately reflect the interests of their members referred to as the principal agent problem something that arises in all organizations in the presence of imperfect information and accountability the weakening of our unions has not only led to lower wages for workers but also eliminated the ability of unions to curb management abuses within the firm, including managers paying themselves exorbitant salaries at the expense not only of workers, but of investment in the firm, thereby jeopardizing its future. What John Galbraith had described in the middle of the 20th century as an economy based on countervailing power has become an economy based on the dominance of large corporations and financial institutions, and even more of the power of the CEO's and other executives within the corporation." Today, more than half of union members live in just seven states, and those states account for one-third of wage and salary employment nationally. These states, the ones that still value unions and labor, California, New York, Illinois, Pennsylvania, Michigan, New Jersey, it's painful to say, and Ohio, these are the states that are driving this economy. We're the ones holding this shit up because we value our workers slightly more than the right-to-work states that demonize labor. Now, I'm no Pollyanna when it comes to union corruption and things that have gone too far. Some of the absurdities in the state pension systems are crushing state budgets. The police unions have far too much power. There's corruption in the union structures, but it's important to remember that this was intentionally created by separating classes of workers and giving too much power to the top brass. Unions like government and corporations are made up of people, and people are corruptible, especially when you create the perfect circumstances for it to thrive. So people like Elon Musk, Ben Shapiro, and Dick Noggins over at Fox Business Channel like to talk about free markets and innovation, but I've hammered this point before, and I'll continue to do so. You show me a billionaire or a multinational company today, and I'll draw a straight line directly back to the government program that birthed it. Listen to Economic Update this week with Rick Wolf, where he talks about the innovative billionaire myth. I live in New York. I can't count the number of times I've heard people bitch about unions, and they always say the same thing. You've probably heard these. They've outlived their usefulness. They're corrupt. Trade unions add so much cost to a project, you can't make money. Unions killed innovation and competitiveness. Unions are the reason China's killing us. That one I don't get. Why would I hire union just to pay one guy to plug something in and another to watch him? Now, the funny part about this is that almost every time I hear these phrases, they're being uttered by a super wealthy person. And I'm not kidding. I literally know multimillionaires and centimillionaires. I, I don't have any billionaire friends yet who will talk about their latest commercial project and then bitch about unions fucking it up. And then they get in their Carrera SUV, leave their 10,000 square foot homes and hop into a private airport to get away from it all for the weekend. It's fine. I really don't give a fuck about people's lives and their wealth or listening to them bitch about how they've made a million less than they could have on a project. I just marvel at the lack of self-awareness. But that's the thing. Millionaires and billionaires aren't the only ones who hate unions. Working class people who aren't in a union despise them as well because they hold them responsible for the price of gas and the price of milk. And the government, for all of its talk during campaign season, clearly hates the unions as well because they take their money and then actively legislate against them. It's what bothers me about the emphasis in the news right now on workers. If you just ripped through the headlines, you'd think that unions are making a comeback. Labor is back, baby. But the examples we gave in the beginning of the show are pulled right from the AFL CIO website as the most notable examples of the year 32 drivers in Maine, a bookstore in LA, a new contract at a distillery in Kentucky that holds the line on healthcare but slightly increases pay, 90 librarians in Ohio. Writers at the Atlantic, prevailing wage for government construction in Michigan, which should have always been the fucking case. A Starbucks in Buffalo. From 30% in the 50s to 10% today, and declining no matter how many librarians and baristas join a union. The larger pattern of negotiations is to hold the line, protect what's there, never more, never moving forward, just holding. The cost of living increases every year, but wages don't, union or otherwise, That's just not the system that we have because we hate workers. So here's an unpopular conclusion that I've come to for the moment. Yes, we should all support union shops. That's actually not the unpopular part. But as I noted from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the states with the highest membership are the ones holding this shit together. We should be fighting for the legislation that is currently on the fucking table and could be passed tomorrow if Biden really cared about workers and the Democrats had any guts. That is perhaps the easiest part of the equation, despite the lip service of the Democratic Party. But if we don't keep adding to the ranks of the Progressive Caucus and demanding change in the voting booth, we're simply resigning ourselves to more of the same. So the fact of the matter is that we might be too fucked up as a nation to hope for more than this. Something we're going to investigate deeper in the new year is this strange version of libertarianism that runs through our politics and infects us all. We call it things like liberty and freedom. Don't tread on me bullshit. Build what you want where you want. Shoot who you want. Don't pay taxes if that's your thing. Just live wild and free. And no matter how much you might be suffering, there's a weird pathology that makes it okay so long as you see others who are worse off. It's mean. It's self-defeating. But it's uniquely American as far as I can tell. It took a Great Depression and a world war to bring labor to the table. Then almost all of the gains made in this time have been slowly removed from the table with only scraps remaining. I think we need to look beyond the unions. While supporting their efforts to maintain what's there, certainly. But we need to examine a fresh new deal for all Americans. See, we're not suddenly going to become a labor economy again. The professional managerial class, the PMC in American capitalism, is very fucking real and not likely to cede ground to bring back manufacturing beyond what currently exists. But what we can do is borrow from the past successes in the labor movement. Messaging, organizing, advocating for things like universal health care, more robust safety nets, paid time off, and family leave. The nuts and bolts of a properly functioning market system with fail-safes built in for periodic convulsions as we transition to a new and greener economy. See, we've built enough fundamental understanding of our economic infrastructure in this show to know that when we support one class over another, and that could be one race, one gender, one labor class, anything that connotes otherness, it will be met with force from the moneyed class and lobbyists in Washington. But as we learned from Occupy, when we shift the conversation, when we change the narrative through the use of language and put the 99% against the 1%, it can change perspectives. That's where Dr. King landed before his life was deliberately cut short. American issues boil down to class. Us versus them. Equity is greater than any marginal attempts to bolster a particular subset of the nation. In other words, we all rise together or we risk falling apart when attacked individually. Pressure Congress on H.R. 842 to help Hold the line at a minimum. Stop calling workers heroes because it separates them and makes them more vulnerable. There's only one union that matters the 99%. Here endeth the lesson. So much fun. Hey, you made it to the end. Here we are in show notes. What's up 99? Uh nothing. Nothing?
1: Yeah. I'm joining a union.
2: Yay! Which one? The um, 99%? Yeah, yeah I, yeah. I was thinking about putting something at the end there about, you know, it's actually so you'll be the uh, you'll be the shop steward of the 99% because sure. you are 99.
1: I could like push a button, like you said, watch a guy plug a thing in.
2: Can I watch you push the button while you watch the other guy plug a thing in?
1: Yeah, but you don't get paid family leave. Why? I just decided it.
2: Oh, my God. You're such a dictator. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. Um, Well, I I really, um, I got kind of hot under the collar at one point just thinking about this, this fucking Kellogg's guy. He just, I'm glad we did that exercise. I hope that actually resonates with people because it's the disconnect in the language that this class uses when they're talking among themselves. And they put these things in these terms that are just so, they, they whitewash how counterintuitive these things are. And you look at the hosts on that show, and I hope people check out that clip. They're just like, yeah, yeah, seems great. Congrats on the great fucking job you're doing. But it's all bullshit. But I, I think that guy, I think that guy, Steve, I think he believes that bullshit. I really do. I used to believe that bullshit too, 99.
1: that's so cute. Where did
2: you get that preposterous hypothesis? Did Steve tell you that per chance? Steve. Yeah, before I, you know, I I unplugged. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think we should either find a way to work in some clips from the video I sent or link it in show notes.
2: So let's link it in show notes. The reason I didn't want to lean on it was because it is... um,
1: We'll explain what it is. so So it's a
2: video from the Kellogg's workers' perspective but it is a it, it too is worker propaganda so i didn't want to necessarily include it because i couldn't verify some of the claims that were made because these are real emotional claims from people and these are and i don't doubt the testimonials that are in there so i think it is a good thing to link into show notes because it shows kind of their struggle which alludes to the fact that it's not just about the new people come it's predominantly about the new members coming in but it's not just about that there are provisions in i guess the current contract that would chip away at some of the gains that they've made over the year but i haven't seen the contract so i can't i didn't want to put that in as as a statement of fact because you know as we say sourcing is important but i do think it's important for people to see their perspective One other thing I want to acknowledge before we go further into show notes, one of the things that makes 99 just reign supreme is that she has been gathering some of our comments over the past several months from unfuckers who have written in talking about union issues and asking us to do this. So I don't want to address them specifically because there's a lot of information here and maybe we could reach out to them on email to let them know that this episode is here. I want to acknowledge Atomic Dog, Patrick McGee, who's actually sent in a couple of notes to us that are really pertinent. Gerardo B, Cedric H, Zach W, Nathan S, Edric, Tyler M. So all of you made it into this episode in one way or another as you were helping us sort of frame and and shape the narrative. So that's why I went out and got and read the books that we are also linking in the resource section. I am not a member of a union. I've never been a union member. Having friends and family that are in a union is not (laughs) the same thing. So I really wanted to learn from a textbook standpoint what the issues are, what the history was, but we were also relying on information from the unfuckers who had directed us in certain ways. So again, a long way of saying that we are doing this together, unfuckers. Like this really is a collaborative effort because I'm keying in on certain points that you're making and I'm challenging some of my own assumptions and then going and doing the work and the research. So thank you to all of you who have written in over the past several months about union issues. Clearly, this is an enormous... I mean, if I showed you the number of pages of notes that were on the cutting room floor because it it just would have been... This isn't about the complete entire history of unions. There's so much we did not go into, but I wanted to create at least a consistent narrative that threaded a century of union experience to show how far we've moved from the protections that we gained but also how it was assiduously ripped apart, just thread by thread. It's a kind of a remarkable story. And that's where I landed at this idea that it is the story of America in so many different ways. So thank you to the unfuckers that have written in. I hope that people enjoyed the show. More importantly, I hope that you send us your feedback after the show. Let me know what I missed. Let me know what you think of the conclusions there. If you even think that an increasing union membership in this country where we could get back to a state that we were in in the 50s or the 70s or even the 30s, if you think that's possible and why, what form would that take? How would that even be possible? What shape would these take knowing that we're not a trade economy anymore, that we do have this professional managerial class? So thanks, unfuckers. The resources for the show, they're linked in the show notes. I won't go over those, but I do want to call out two of the books in particular, because you heard me reference them a lot. That was State of the Union, A Century of American Labor by Nelson Lichtenstein, and There is Power in a Union, the Epic Story of Labor in America. That's that's a big one. I actually didn't get through every single chapter, but I would say I got through about two-thirds of the book, but it's about 800 pages, so that's why this episode took so long. Anyway, Philip Dre, There's Power in a Union. Check that out. The other that we referenced uh, that's probably of note is Kurt Anderson's Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, because there was a really good section on unions in there. And we'll probably pull from that one in the Stiglitz book in in future ones. Oh, narrative economics is also amazing. And for Podlove just so happens that this week rick wolf did hit on a couple of things in the beginning it's misleading because the episode is about masks and mandates but the first 15 minutes of the show he dedicates to kind of debunking the myths of the billionaire class and how they got there you know by being so creative and innovative and he makes the point that like no elon musk actually so much shit happened before you came into the picture that made you possible But Beethoven did it from his own head Like that's a fucking genius and an artist You are just a beneficiary Of fucking hundreds and hundreds Of years of innovations, technologies Subsidies and government interventions To make your shit possible Fuck you Anyway, Let's talk about coffee donations shall we Let's Okay. First off we have a, a couple of new members Tapopu is now a member Says love you guys my favorite podcast ever Welcome to the fold Tapopu Adrian B. is also now a member, came to us, of course, from our friends Jay and Amanda over at Best of the Left. And Atomic Dog, who we referenced before, writing in with some uh, union ideas for us, bought us three coffees and said, thanks for putting up with all the chicken talk.
1: Maybe the chicken should unionize. It would be so cute. Uh,
2: I'm going to refrain from... Talking about chickens? Why? I just think you know it's just shut down so brutally with unclockers. I want to move on. I want to move past it. It's, it's not a about loss. that. It's a big L. This,
1: now we're trying. I want to protect the chickens' rights. Imagine a chicken with a little sign. Be mm-hmm. so cute, a little baby chick. Mm-hmm. Go cry. Oh my
2: god! On Facebook, Jennifer S. shared the UNFTR Reddit. Oh, I gotta look at that thing. Check out the UNFTR Reddit. Let's discuss the topics Max Manny and the lovely 99 bring up week after week. Uh, oh, cool. Well, thanks for digging into Reddit. We'll go there this week and see what the hell's happening.
1: You're going to ignore the last <laughs> line? You always. You no, 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 no. I'm not going to ignore it. the last line. I
2: was thinking about how I was going to transition to you and the Twitters. Uh, but so, anyway, she finishes her comments with uh, Reddit's a place for us to get down to the brass tacks of making real change. FMF, FRM, MMT, also 99 is fucking amazing. Mad respect. Three different face emojis. Well, there you go. Another 99 acolyte. So, what's going on on the Twitters?
1: <laughs> sure. Hmm. So, Rotan Rick, this was uh, in regards to last week's episode, said, I just don't understand why the fuck we're spending so fucking much money on the military when they already is set.
2: Yeah, true that. Check out our climate industrial complex episode. And, and basically, I guess the past 10 episodes we have been railing against it. But Bernie has been giving some speeches from the floor saying exactly this because fucking Bernie, man.
1: And then at Don Dane said, wonderful, informative podcast. Listen and learn the whys of our current problems. Thanks, Don. Then Rhea Lynch, 82, tweeted out the Independent Platform Man episode and said, have been enjoying the podcast, but the quasi-anonymity of the host, Max, seems to discredit the podcast's intent. Quote, the goal to make people recognize that the power is in their hands. The power to be discerning, to push for sources.
2: Interesting. What say
1: you, Max? Well, what
2: I say to this is what I said from the very beginning, which is sometimes the person, the character, becomes the uh, message. And we just didn't want that. We want the work to stand on its own. So it's weird, I think, that we interject so much personality. But that's really just a measure to kind of have some fun with it and come to like enjoy the perspectives of the show. But for me, starting the show, it was not about, you know, becoming a person in the world and becoming a known figure. It was about the actual work. And I have toiled in obscurity before under my real self. And it didn't matter one way or the other. And in fact, all it did was create and engender some sort of feelings towards me. But whether it was appearance or what have you or how I present in the world, this is just the message. This is just the words. I don't think it'll last forever. I just, I don't think anything does. And I'm sure at some point we'll, you know, come out from behind the microphones. But I really just want the words and the work to stand on its own. So that's why we do it Real Lynch. I know it seems, it might seem disingenuous, but that wasn't the intent.
1: Nicely said. Thanks. And then lastly, Gimli of Gloin said, Why the fuck was I not following UNFTR Pod on Twitter? Well, I am now. Fuck Milton Friedman.
2: Welcome. Welcome to Twitter. You sadly won't find me there very often just because I suck.
1: We tweet all the time. You say that. it's
2: I suck. I, I'm saying I, I suck. Know, but I, everybody knows it's you. No, they
1: don't. Yeah, they do. I don't think that's true.
2: I think it's true now.
1: <laughs> it should be. <laughs>
2: <laughs> on Instagram, Macaroni, Macaroni said, Being a member of the military currently, I see almost everyone around me I work with itching to go to war with China. They've basically forgotten about the Middle East already, and they're just moving on to the next. Wow. I appreciate that sentiment, although it scares the fuck out of me. At Spencer RDS. What's up, Spence? Uh, said, holy shit, you blew my mind. I will not look at Chinese relations the same way again. Thank you so much. I'd never considered the Taiwan-Puerto Rico parallel, but wow, glass houses. Appreciate that, Spence. And uh, do you want to read the last one?
1: Yes. This last one is from uh, Handle Redacted, because it's my mom.
2: No.
0: <laughs>
1: who's writing in, because I did. I shouted her out the other day on the show, if you remember. So she said, Hey, Max in 99, I'm a fairly new listener, and I've really been enjoying the show. I've learned quite a bit and love the Gnome episodes so much, it moved me to watch a C-SPAN interview with him from this past September. Keep up the good work. Oh, and by the way, 99, I may be short, but not much goes over my head, lol. Because I said that I didn't know if she enjoyed the economics episodes. I wasn't maligning her intelligence, mom. But now my mom is, I guess, a recurring character on the show. <laughs> Welcome,
2: mom! I, there, oh god, there's so much I want to say, so much I want to learn, so much I want to dig Please, into. Please no. Keep writing in at redacted handle, mom. Oh, that's so great. Um, I love your daughter, mom. There you go. Uh, and so does, I mean, so does the entire unfucking universe. By the way, from uh from Canada to down under, it's pretty cool. So we have some great emails and feedback on our contact form as well. Uh, If you want to email us, just go to UNFTR.com. You find all sorts of ways to get in touch with us. First one's from Jeremy Jeremy. Uh, is a great fan of the show, but your episode on China, while good enough when you were putting the boot in the American Imperium, was rather shoddy when it came to the Chinese world. I do not doubt that, Jeremy Jeremy. I would actually, if you don't mind, love for you to expound on that. You said you gave me some reading uh, material to look at, and I am going to do that. I was kind of careful to try not to go too far into Chinese history. My assumption is that the only place that I did that was with respect to Taiwan changing hands between Chinese, uh, well, everybody trying to settle it from Dutch uh, settlers on, to the Chinese, to the Japanese, to the Chinese again. And if I've missed something uh, really important in the timeline, I will go correct it. But I wasn't trying to give a history lesson on China. I try to stay pretty much in the American lane, unless we're doing something super tongue-in-cheek like we do with Canada. Uh, Elena S., about the episode playing chicken with China, you do such a totally tremendous job. When Sleepy Joe, sorry for using a Trumpist nomenclature, was elected, I knew he was itching to start a conflict or war somewhere. That's the American way. Uh, Give some other great examples. So basically just lauds us for our effort there with the uh, episode. Patrick McGee. In 99's intro, it was acknowledged that the 2022 defense budget was just approved by the House for a dollar amount considerably greater than was requested. But here's my problem. We both know the Democratic Party currently controls all three branches of the government. You're, I see where this is going. Yes, this is a big problem. Coming up in a year for the executive branch, less for the Senate, where it's very close and longer for the House, you're likely aware that although 70 representatives voted against the NDAA, 19 of those no votes were from Republicans, leaving only 51 Democrats voting against the military budget. Last time I checked, there were 95 Democrats in the House Progressive Caucus, many of whom must have voted for the NDAA budget. Which leads me to this conclusion. The Democratic Party owns both the NDAA budget and the U.S. foreign policy regarding China. Patrick McGee, you could not be more fucking right. Yeah, this is a... Uh, so let's go back. Our invasion in Vietnam actually started with JFK, a Democrat.
1: Why didn't
2: you do your uh, I. That's true. Uh, JFK started the uh, conflict in uh, Vietnam, even though he didn't call it a war. Woodrow Wilson was a fucking asshole, but a Democrat, World War I. Then uh, FDR, Democrat, World War Two. Bosnia Bill Clinton I fucked Bosnia (laughs) I fucked Herzegovina too Oh wait, they're the same thing Um, Barack Obama More death and destruction and mayhem by drone strikes Uh, Look, uh, I've been clear I want to kill everybody Um, Democrats are just as hawkish and brutal and fucked up as any Republican They're just less honest about it How about that? Bo W., in my best disappointed father voice, Max, 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 writing to inform you how bigly disappointed I am in your recent show, Playing Chicken with China. You may think I'm disappointed in your intelligent analysis of the growing drumbeats toward conflict or our, quote, Kung Flu partners in the capitalist factory, China, that I feel you're always witty, insightful, and level-headed, deep diving into any given topic while providing always relevant foundation-building historical context with somehow lacking relevance or nuance. But no, no, no. What I'm so very disappointed about, again, bigly, is your complete miss of a patently perfect opportunity to incorporate a reference from a legendary basic white guy movie at approximately 6.52 into the show. You stated, but China, China is an entirely different animal. Surely this was a miss. The proper statement should have been, but China, China is an entirely different animal altogether. At which point Manny and 99 would simultaneously chime in with, China is an entirely different animal. Yes, my dear friend, airplane.
0: It's an entirely different kind of flying altogether. It's It's an an entirely entirely different different kind kind of flying. flying.
2: So right. Fuck. You missed the perfect opportunity to speak some jive. Also an airplane reference. Fuck. You're right. You know what, Bo? I may have to fire myself for a week. Thank you for that. We had uh, some activity over on Substack. We actually were hitting, uh, we're getting close to hitting a pretty cool milestone on Substack, which I'm really excited about. And in 2022, one of my resolutions is to be more active on Substack in between episodes. So obviously just sending it out is the way that we do, but actually sending more stuff to people. Well, you're, you're raising your eyebrows at me. You think I'm not going to hold through to that resolution. What are you doing?
1: I'm not, no, it's, I was, I'm worried about you. <laughs> Why? Because that's a lot of work.
2: Oh, I thought you meant you are worried about me like untethered without oh, your no. watchful editorial well, eye. <laughs> I mean,
1: I will definitely be your editorial eye as always. <laughs>
2: okay. Okay. Um, anyway, so thanks everybody for just more likes on Substack, a few more comments, a little bit of back and forth. I'm more comfortable, to be honest, over in Substack than I am on social. Just Substack is where we live and obviously the pod itself. So um, thanks for checking in over there. And we had a couple of reviews. One is from Ava Monterith. Every episode is a definite repeater, lots to learn and humorous. Appreciate you for that. And Empty Nester FC said, I credit Amy Winehouse for setting me down the path to UNFTR. Long story, but the specific lyrics should be obvious. I use the expression liberally for the past five years and stumbled upon the podcast. Thanks for the work and the perspectives you offer a must listen to in my books. I'm not a big Amy Winehouse. I mean, I liked her, but now I got to dig into that. What the fuck does that mean? Well, we
1: used... Rehab in our Republican rehab episode, but mm. I don't feel like you would use they try to make me go to rehab as like a catchphrase in day to day. No, 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 Maybe, oh, maybe back to uh, back to black. That's her song.
2: She thought that was ACDC That's
1: back in black. Oh, Valerie, <laughs> she just loves the name Valerie.
2: Oh, and Empty Nester, if you're out there, I'm sorry, I could, we're having trouble unpacking the riddle. Let us know, as always. Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by Manny Faces Media. The The show is lovingly produced. I'm gonna say this slowly just to make sure you're ready. By the great and powerful 99 (laughs) who has nothing prepared.
1: (laughs) Yee hee! I forgot. What about, um, um, uh,
2: uh, You're uh, just giving Manny so much. Why? Why do you do that?
1: I didn't mean, I don't, I'm, say, I'm not saying just, he's, I only give him just, fodder when i mean about him. Mm, I love Manny faces. I love love, love Manny, Manny faces.
2: faces. Our theme music and all the original music, in fact, was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit tommcgovern.com. The show is hosted by Eugene Debs and distributed by the Pinkertons with bats and clubs and and, and bullets. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to unftrpod at gmail.com. Connect with us on social at unftrpod. Hey, become a member. Seriously, become a member. Just do it. Fuck it. At buymeacoffee.com slash unftr. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash unftrpod and get some native roasted coffee from our partners on the reservation of Boospatuck at unftr.com slash shop. Read our essays on Substack at unftr.substack.com because it's always free. Now, next week, we got a holiday quickie. And then, unfuckers, we're taking a little break, taking a little breather, we're gonna take off for the new year, we're gonna recharge the batteries. And then we are gonna come exploding back into 2022 with some serious, seriously big unfucking happenings. And I don't know what yet. I'm just very tired. I'm gonna rest a little bit. Okay. How about you,
1: 99? What am I gonna do? Yeah, for the new year. I don't know. Man, right? What is New Year? What is New Year?
2: New Year, new virus.
1: Ew! Oh, why would you say that to
2: me? Oh, big variant coming. What? Sweeping the nation.
1: Stop! I don't like that. I want it to be gone. Can't one of our unfuckers fix it? Like one of you has to be a scientist. Just make it stop.
2: Yeah. Oh, come out with a new new vaccine and call it the uh, you know Unfucking. unfuck the virus. Yeah. That'd be great.
1: <laughs> should we should we sell a vaccine? This is our moment. We get to Rogan territory.
2: Ooh. Uh, if anybody hasn't watched it yet, I know we're so at the end of show notes. My favorite thing maybe ever <laughs> is Tim Heidecker's 12-hour live stream, which wasn't 12 hours.
1: Yeah, wasn't it one hour on repeat for 12 hours? It was an hour
2: and 15 minutes But on that repeat. also is
1: very Rogan because I'm sure if you listen to 12 hours, it would just be the same thing.
2: Honestly, it is some of the most brilliant fucking satire that I've seen
1: There's a, uh, I want to, I meant to link that article. If anyone's still listening, (laughs) I could find it. Um, Someone wrote an article. They listened to like hundreds of hours of, okay, I'm pulling it up right now. Media Matters monitored over 350 hours of the Joe Rogan experience and found the show is grounded in misinformation and bigotry. So Mm. lots of COVID-19 misinformation, uh, anti-trans rhetoric. Mm. Right wing misinformation and bigotry, mm. you know, the usual. So I'll link that.
2: Yeah, but I think he had Mel Gibson on, so that makes it OK, right?
1: My eyes just truly, they rolled so hard in the back of my head, they almost fell out. I'm just worked up. Now you're <laughs> I am. I'm holding my boobs. I don't know why. All right.